In Psalm 2, the nations of the world are depicted as they truly are. They're depicted in a state of uproar and in the process of devising vain things. The kings of the earth do rise up, and the rulers of the world band together against the Lord and against his anointed, scheming to break off their chains and to throw off their shackles. And how does God respond to the nations? He just laughs at their pathetic impotence and their efforts because God has installed His Son on the throne of the universe. He has given to His Son the nations as His heritage. He has given to Him the ends of the earth as His possession. And with a rod of iron, the Lord Jesus Christ will shatter the nations that have rebelled against Him. That's just a partial summary of Psalm 2. But if you read through the Psalms, you'll see that theme occurring again and again and again. In fact, you see that theme occurring throughout Scripture. And it's essentially the message of our text in Zechariah today. Foes rise against Jesus Christ and he casts them down. We looked at the first vision of Zechariah last time I was here with you in the evening, and in that vision, the Lord gave assurance to his people that he had returned to them and he had come to them with mercy. And he spoke comforting words to them. But in that vision, nothing was said about how he was going to deal with these nations that were at ease and who had oppressed the people of the Lord. These people who had oppressed God's people and hadn't yet suffered any consequences for doing so. And it's in this second vision that the Lord begins to address that situation. He begins to describe what he's going to do in dealing with the nations of the earth. So this passage of Zechariah is essentially a restatement of Psalm 2, in a way, we might say. And... um, In that sense, this vision is a companion to the first vision, and it reveals to us this grand redemptive truth that the powers of the earth that resist the Lord will be routed and destroyed. The powers of the earth that resist the Lord will be routed and destroyed. You see the outline in your your bulletin there. First, we're going to look at the four horns, and then secondly, at the four craftsmen, and then we'll make some application. Actually, before we get to application, there's going to need to be a little bit more interpretation, but we'll take care of that too, Lord willing. But first of all, four horns. The second vision of Zechariah begins with the words, And I lifted my eyes and saw and behold. And those same words, those exact same words, are used to introduce the next vision and several other of Zechariah's visions. In fact, if your chapter 2 of Zechariah is there on the same page that you're looking at for tonight's text, uh, you can see the words are identical. And I lifted my eyes and I saw and behold. Um, And this uh, English translation of, of the Hebrew is a very good literal way of expressing what the Hebrew actually says. The thing is, it's not a way that's really common for us to speak in, in our day. Um, the general idea 
is probably that Zechariah, having seen that first vision, was, was sort of preoccupied and he's meditating on that vision and when all of a sudden his attention is grabbed by this second vision. And maybe he's a bit surprised. After seeing that vision of horses, he might have been taken off guard or even amazed that God was showing him another vision. I mean, it's remarkable enough for God to come and give someone a vision and here Zechariah is receiving a second one. And or there may have been something about that second vision that was particularly moving or even intimidating. But whatever the case, what did he see? He saw four horns. And as with the previous vision, Zechariah didn't comprehend the meaning of the vision. So he asked the angel, the interpreting angel, to explain what he's seeing. And the angel says very plainly to him, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now horns are symbolic and they frequently symbolize abstract concepts such as strength, fierceness, pride. They're emblems of dignity, also of dominion, but if you take all those concepts and kind of meld them together, uh, horns signify political and military power. And we can understand political and military power in a more concrete way as referring to rulers and nations. And that way of interpreting a vision of horns is very consistent with other parts of Scripture. For instance, uh, Daniel saw several visions that included horns. And Daniel also had an interpreting angel. And the angel came and explained to Daniel the things that he was seeing in his visions. And he told Daniel that the horns that he had seen represented various kings and various nations and kingdoms. And so I think in the context of Zechariah's vision, it makes perfect sense for us to interpret these horns in the same way. They're a reference to earthly powers. So the four horns symbolize kings and kingdoms that had scattered the covenant people of God. Or in other words, the forces that had conquered them and sent them into exile. Well, it was the Assyrians who had scattered Israel, the northern kingdom, and Babylon had scattered Judah. But over the course of history, many other nations had oppressed and opposed the people of God and been a menace to the sons of Jacob. And that's why many scholars think these four horns don't refer to four specific nations, but these four horns together represent all the surrounding nations. And so the number four itself is thought to be symbolic. A biblical number of completeness, as it's often used, but also uh, representing and referring to the, the four points of the compass. And therefore to all the nations that surrounded Israel on every side. If we adopt that way of understanding, then what do you have to the north? You've got Syria, Assyria, and Babylon. To the east, there's Ammon and Moab. To the west, Philistia. And to the south, Edom and Egypt. 
Israel surrounded by enemies. They were on all sides. And all of these people groups had plundered Israel multiple times. It says in our text, in our, in our translation, that they have scattered, these horns have scattered God's people, and that's suggestive, certainly, of uh, exile. But that Hebrew word translated scattered can also be translated tossed in the sense of, if you imagine an ox tossing its victim on its horns. And then verse 21 brings out the intimidation, the oppression that had been brought on Israel by their enemies. They'd been scattered or they'd been tossed, we might say, quote, so that no one raised his head. So you see how oppressed and downtrodden the people were. So beaten down and in such brutal subjugation, they dare not even raise their heads. They dare not even look up. So that's the four horns. But then we have the four craftsmen. The Lord showed Zechariah something else. He saw the four horns and then he saw four craftsmen. Well, what kind of craftsmen are they? It's possible they were carpenters. They may have been blacksmiths or some other kind of artisan. But the word isn't specific enough for us to know for certain, but here's what we do know. The word entails some kind of a skilled worker. And their number, furthermore, corresponds to the number of horns that Zechariah saw. The interpreting angel emphasizes that in verse 21 when he sets the horns over against the craftsmen. These are the horns. These are the ones who have come to terrify them. Now, in general, we have a pretty good idea of what horns represent, what they symbolize, but what about the craftsmen? Who are they or what are they? Well, the interesting thing is the angel doesn't tell us. And the reason the angel doesn't tell us who the craftsmen are or what the craftsmen are is because Zechariah didn't even ask that question. Did you notice what his question was? He asked about the horns, what are these? But when he saw the craftsmen, he didn't want to know about their identity, apparently. He wanted to know about what their, what their mission was, their purpose, their work. And so he asked, what are these coming to do? He doesn't seem too wrapped around the axle about their identity. He wants to know why they're there and what they're about. And the angel answered Zechariah, saying, These have come to terrify the horns of the nations and to cast them down. In other words, the works of oppression, the deeds of oppression done against God's people were not going to go unanswered. In exact proportion to the evils of the nations, the Lord would respond in his zeal and indignation. That's what we learn from the matching of the four craftsmen to the four horns. God's holy retribution against his enemies would be neither deficient nor excessive. And the fact that God raises up craftsmen or skilled workers of some kind shows a deliberate contrast between the horns and the craftsmen. Deliberate contrast between the nations 
what they do and how they do it as opposed to what God does and how He does it. The horns portray nations flaunting raw power, haphazardly almost. But the Lord responds skillfully with invincible precision. Now, horns may seem more formidable in an outward sense. Craftsmen, on the other hand, don't necessarily come across as all that impressive to us. Yet God uses them. He uses them to terrify the rulers of the nations. Or, as it could be translated, He uses them to rout them. By means of His craftsmen, the Lord would strike fear into the kingdoms of the earth, and He won't merely frighten them, He will cast them down. And I think this is another way of illustrating a general biblical principle that God's power is perfected in weakness. In other words, when God's power is often most remarkably displayed to us, when he uses weak means to accomplish mighty things. Scripture tells us that the foolishness of man, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So God, if he wanted to, in response to the horns, he could just raise up bigger, more powerful horns. but he delights to show his power over men by using weak things, by using unlikely things, things that seem to be inadequate. That's how he shows his adequacy, his sufficiency. So, for instance, you have Gideon, and Gideon is called upon to lead Israel against the invading Midianite army. And Gideon has an army of 32,000 men, which sounds like a lot, but the Midianites had far more than that. It says they were like locusts covering the surface of the earth for multitude. But Gideon's got an army of 32,000. And God comes to Gideon and says, hey, Gideon, uh, you got too many guys. We're going to send some home. And in the first wave of uh, those who were discharged from Gideon's band, he loses two-thirds of his force. And God says, you've still got too many. God ultimately reduced Gideon's 32,000-man army to 1% of what he originally had, 300 men. And using those 300 men... God got the victory. Or there was Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he had this dream that Daniel interpreted for him. He dreamt of this giant statue, this giant figure. And Daniel explained to King Nebuchadnezzar that it represented nations of the world, various empires that were to come. Most of them were still yet future. Powerful nations. But this stone comes and strikes the feet 
of that image and shatters the whole thing. And then that stone grew and became a mighty mountain that filled the earth. One commentator by the name of Anthony Peterson said, compared to mighty warriors, craftsmen may be seen as figures of weakness. And in this case, there is a strange conjunction of power and weakness in the vision with the weak overcoming the strong. That's what, that's what God does. That's the way he works. And the very best example of this of all is that when God came to dwell among us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, he came, he did come, just as Isaiah foretold that he would come. He came as the wonderful counselor. He came as mighty God, the everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He came to set up a kingdom that would never end. But when he came, he seemed insignificant. Born into a poor family, raised in a contemptible village, far off the beaten path, no notoriety, without fame, without political influence. And when he began to proclaim his kingdom and carry out his ministry, what did he do? Did he raise a militia? Did he try to organize a campaign to force out the Romans? How did Jesus of Nazareth usher in his kingdom? Well, he, he went around teaching, preaching. Jesus, the master craftsman, even today is building his church and he's still using the exact same tools, still using the exact same means through the ministry of the Word. So that's the craftsman, and uh, as I said, this uh, final section would be application. But this passage uh, warrants more interpretation, really, before we get into any final application. We can understand, can't we, that uh, God will raise up leaders or champions who will overthrow the powers that have scattered his people. Got it. But how will that work out in real time? We, we, we must want to know, right? What does it all mean? When and how will all these, this vision be fulfilled? Well, you might start by asking, you know, is this something that Zechariah and the people of his generation were going to see happen? Were they going to see the fulfillment of this vision? Would it be fulfilled in their days? Well, there has been speculation that the vision of the craftsman is a deliberate reference to the people who are actually really building the temple in Zechariah's day. Some have even interpreted the four craftsmen individually and specifically as Zerubbabel, Joshua. Remember we heard about them in, um, in Haggai. Zerubbabel, Joshua, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They were the four craftsmen, according to one person's interpretation. Well, that's an interesting hypothesis, but uh, in the days of those men, the nations that had actually dispersed Israel and Judah were already cast down. 
Assyria and Babylon had both fallen, and, and looking at this vision through that kind of a lens, as I just described, doesn't yield a very satisfying result. The Persian Empire was in control of the land at this point, and the Israelites, the covenant people, would go on to experience harassment and oppression from future empires, Greece and Rome. Then, during the Roman Empire, when when Jesus, the master craftsman, came, his work didn't include terrifying or casting down the Roman Empire, did it? Did he do anything of the sort? No. In fact, the Roman authorities killed him, and eventually the Roman Empire destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and scattered the Jews yet again. Now, it is unquestionably true, without doubt, beyond dispute, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. He told us so himself. It is unquestionably true that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. But if during this present age we're looking for some kind of political manifestation of what is described in Zechariah's vision here, I think we're going to have a hard time finding it. The vision that Zechariah saw wasn't a prophecy that had or would have a single tangible fulfillment in global politics in this present age. The horns and the craftsmen were a portrayal of what God is doing spiritually throughout this present age as he builds and advances his kingdom of grace. Throughout the ages, enemies have sought to extinguish the covenant people of God, but God always preserves his church. He always preserves his people. And by God's grace, and through the work of his craftsmen, the church always prevails over her enemies. There's a hymn we sing from time to time, and one of the verses says, The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. So does this vision in Zechariah speak of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, yes it does. This vision is a confirmation of what God promised to Abraham 15 centuries before Zechariah. The Lord said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When the nations raise up their horns against the children of Abraham, God raises up craftsmen to terrify and cast down the nations. And in case you're thinking, well, how does that apply to me? I'm not descended from Abraham. Yes, you are descended from Abraham. If you are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ... If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Those aren't my words. Those are Scripture's words. Galatians 3.29. God's promise to Abraham is valid for you today. Think of all the times 
throughout history, when the powers of the world have tried to extinguish the church of Jesus Christ, they've never succeeded, and they never will. Kingdoms fall, but Christ's church stands. In the words of another beloved hymn, that word, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. So now, for a few points of closing application. First, as we've already touched upon, God uses weak things to shame the strong. Craftsmen to shame the horns of the powers of the nations. God uses means that seem weak to do his mighty work. And he loves to do that. Because when he does, he gets the glory. Sadly, you and I chronically fall into this trap of seeking glory for ourselves, seeking credit, recognition for ourselves. God uses weak things to remind us that the work of the kingdom gets done not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. We are just these weak vessels. And as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God uses weak things to shame the strong. And yet he uses us. That's our second point of application. God uses us. God uses his people. He uses weak means, but he uses means nevertheless. From one generation to the next, as long as this present age endures, God has been raising up and will continue to raise up people to do the work of his kingdom. He raises up people to defend the work and the workers in his kingdom. He sends forth laborers into his harvest. Didn't Jesus command his disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he may send laborers into the harvest? And his church did pray that, and his church does pray that, and God is answering the prayer. Sometimes God raises up an Augustine or a Wycliffe or a Calvin or a Luther or a Jonathan Edwards. But along with men like those, God also raises up ordinary pastors, teachers. God raises up ordinary elders and deacons. He raises up ordinary Sunday school teachers. He raises up ordinary moms and dads, ordinary grandparents, all of them craftsmen for his kingdom. And he's raised up each one of you who are united to him by faith. You have a role to play in this great work of redemption, great history, this great story of redemption. You have a job to do as a part of his roster of craftsmen. And what's your tool? It's the Word of God. It's always been the tool, and it always will be. When the prince of darkness came against Jesus with a frontal assault of temptations in the wilderness, how did Jesus counter that threat? 
Jesus had divine power. He could have, with his divine power, just annihilated Satan on the spot. He didn't do that, although he could have. He didn't drive Satan into swine the way he did with all that legion of demons in Gadara, although he could have done that too if he'd wanted to. What tool did Jesus, the master craftsman, use? He used the Word of God, and you and I have the same tool at our disposal. Learn to wield it. Learn to utilize it. And now as we come to the Lord's Supper, I'm reminded once again of how God uses the weak things to confound the strong. Now Jesus, at his first advent, didn't come in power and pomp. He didn't come with prestige. He came in humility, in obscurity, weakness. And he yielded up his life. I'm reminded of the words of a song that I love to listen to at Christmas time. It's not a very well-known song. But one of the verses speaks of Jesus and his work and how he, through weakness, accomplished the greatest triumph of all. And the words go like this. The just and gentle promised one would triumph o'er the fall and conquer by his own defeat and win by losing all. That's such a wonderful, it's the ultimate power. It's the ultimate display of, of triumphing over the strong through weakness. God using weak things to do mighty works. And we remember that. We remember how Jesus came and was defeated, or so it seemed, at the cross. How he lost everything, so it seems, at the cross. But in that, he gained victory over the grave, victory over the devil, victory over sin, and accomplished redemption for you and me. So now let's come to the table and remember him and give thanks.